Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said this to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This has been a hard time. For Israel. They have been without a word from God for many, many long years. God has been silent, no longer coming to them through the prophets. And now, a new global power, much like that of Assyria or Babylon from their own past, has again occupied Jerusalem. Rome is powerful and mighty and allegiant to nation over God, enforcing its taxes unjustly, persuading even righteous people to sin. And it extorts the poor for the little they have. The people of God are wondering, what should we do? These words of the baptizer John, recorded by Luke, uh, must be hopeful words for the Jews who've waited so long, though John seems a little skeptical of his Riverside crowd, right? And their motives for being there. But he's saying a leveling justice is coming. Valleys filled in, mountains flattened, smooth paths are coming. The way of the Lord is coming. Salvation is coming. And so repent. I remember the first time I understood or began to understand a little bit more closely what this word repent meant to to turn away. And I knew it was more than just seeing things differently uh, or feeling differently about things, but it was an action. I was taught it was a military word. To turn away, a soldier was called to turn away and go the opposite direction, an entirely new one. I was asking, what should I do? I knew what I believed, but what do I do with this belief? 
I would have to see myself now participating in a new kind of humanity, one that gives away money rather than just using it for my personal gain. One that refuses to commodify people, but instead treat them with love and respect as I treat myself. One that refuses the violence and the greed and the consumption and the competition of the modern day. This would take doing something different. The people are asking this question, what should we do? What's our role in this coming justice of God? How do we act? How do we respond? How do we enact that justice now? John is calling his audience to repentance in preparation for the way of the Lord, a new way of moving throughout the world. And he's using actually another time in Israel's history when they were also asking, what shall we do? He's returning back to Isaiah 40. Hear these words of the prophet. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Say to your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out! And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the the flowers fall, Because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. Grass withers and flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. As you and I, as we have come to learn of this Jewish faith, uh, we've got to know a bit of this story, right? Uh, This is the second book of Isaiah in chapter 40, he's describing a new exodus, a return of an exiled people from Babylon back into Jerusalem. And he's saying, hey, the axe has come in. It's chopped down their nation. It's left only a small stump, he talks about, a faithful remnant. And now a new chapter is coming in their story. And they're called to prepare for that new chapter, for this coming way of the Lord. And they're asking, what shall we do? And Isaiah tries to persuade them prophetically to what? To repent, to turn away from their sin, to live into this vision of God for his people, to be holy and just and merciful, a light to their neighbors, to not give in to the lies that some humans are other than human that some of their leaders and the powerful ones, that they will somehow live longer. He says they're just like all humans, human, frail, temporary, like grass, like flowers, like them, like us. They've sinned. They've been a corrupt people. They've shook hands with the powerful of this world, and they've tried to find safety and security through corrupt channels, through blurring the lines between covenant faithfulness and success in the world. (coughs) Excuse me. They have had the thought that in their minds, 
They can know the right things, practice the right sacraments, and that God will not be concerned with their materialism or their dependence on labor and exploitation of the poor and the political allegiances. They have faced the consequences for that, though. They've been chopped down and left as a stump. They've been purified, and now they're heading home. A new era is coming. A new age is beginning. The people of God have experienced his justice and mercy, and they can now begin to live in such a way that gives witness to the world around them, to the nations, that God is who he says he is. He is a just, gracious, socially engaged God who does not turn away from our politics or from our material lives, but calls into account our behavior towards our neighbors in all arenas. The prophet is telling a story greater than the story of nation or of human leaders. God is the God of all history. He is in control, and his justice will ultimately reign. One way or the other, through punishment and and discipline, or through the leveling work of his people loving their neighbors, God's justice will reign. But something strange happens. Their suffering under the discipline of God has not changed their hearts. We read on through Isaiah and we find that they actually refuse to live in to this comfort that God is offering. This justice, this glory of God that would be made available. Because they're angry that they're going to have to suffer to love their neighbors. That's too hard. Nobody likes to have it that hard. It's been hard on us. Why should we have to do the hard work now? God should make it a little easier after we've been through all that we've been through. But they again turn to the idols of Babylon for comfort and security. So God declares through this prophet that he will do a new thing to solve the problem. He goes on to write about a suffering servant that will come. One filled with the Spirit of God who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what God or do what Israel has failed to do to restore righteousness to the people of God, to bear witness to the nations of God of his love and his justice, to announce good news. He will bring the restoration of all things through dying on behalf of his people. And all nations will be invited to come participate in this. You read Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant. Isaiah says later on, there will be two kinds of responses to this servant. One, those who will choose to live in his way and those who will reject him. But 400 years later, as the prophet of John is preaching, this Messiah has not come. They're still waiting on the day of the Lord. What should we do? And so what is Luke doing by showing us John the Baptist starting his ministry with this prophetic message of Isaiah? Perhaps he's preparing people again for an even newer exodus, a coming out again from the corruption of their oppressing, of oppressing their neighbors, of competing for more, and of slandering others by, because of their discontent. Another opportunity to repent of putting their trust in the government's powers and systems and to choose to live now as a preparing kind of people, a people awaiting the arrival of their coming king. And the people ask, what should we do? And John's clear, anyone who has two shirts, share with the one who has none. 
Anyone who has food should do the same. Don't collect any more than you're required to. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content. Be content. Be content with your pay. It seems that their sin wasn't much different than the sin of the people Isaiah was addressing. Social and material sin. They ask, what should we do? And John's response is, socially and materially repent and treat your neighbor with love. But we notice something different about Isaiah's language and John's language. Repentance in Isaiah, look at this, repentance in Isaiah is going to lead to God's glory revealed in his people. Repentance, as John the Baptist puts it in Luke, is going to lead to salvation. And we go, what's it? Why, why is that different? We're supposed to notice the difference. Luke wants us to notice the difference. That this isn't about the glory of God in Israel anymore. This is about salvation, liberation and redemption, and not some disembodied salvation when you die. That wouldn't have been anywhere close to what they would have thought of. But rather, a material and social saving. Saving in their living justly and loving their neighbors now. A way that prepares the way of the Lord for when he comes then. The Messiah who will rule in that same way. Could it still mean that? Could salvation still have something to do with our social and material lives and not just our inner private lives? We witness at least three audiences that hear his message. Each of them is asking, what shall we do? There's first this crowd, this kind of mix of Jewish leaders and Jewish insiders. There's the people in power who are there, who have long held the center of that religion, and like Pharisees and teachers of the law, these kinds of people. And they're seeking hope that their salvation from Rome will come, that this Messiah will raise up and govern people and expel Rome. What should they do? To level things from their high position, perhaps it actually might end up looking more like this priest's son, John, serving God outside the temple to people on the margins. And there's these everyday Jewish people that are there as well. You've got to have imagined that just normal people who live religious and vocational lives for their day. And they're also hoping for saving from the powers of Rome and perhaps the powers of religious fundamentalists who are controlling them. What should they do? Give whatever excess, excess you have, food and clothing, give it to your neighbors in need. The fallen Jewish tax collector is the second person in the crowd who have lost hope in their covenant people and kind of the ways of God. And, and they, have, uh, they have decided to betray their own people. They're seeking hope that their salvation from maybe this way of life, this lost life of corruption will happen. What should they do? John says, don't collect any more than you're supposed to. Don't get more out of people just because you can. Don't commodify them. And then you have the third party, this, these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, these Gentiles who don't belong to the people of God, who don't share in the history of Isaiah and what he's talking about, but who are listening in on the conversation. And to their surprise, this God is actually opening up this new social and material way to live and to find salvation to them as well. 
to newcomers, to outsiders, to those who want in on justice and mercy that will prepare the way of the Lord, that will avoid God's wrath, and that will bring about salvation. They are perhaps hopeful for salvation from something else. Salvation from the life as the victors. Salvation from those who've been on top for a long time. What should they do? Stop being corrupted by greed. Learn to be content. Stop lying about people. But they get to repent as well. You and I might be tempted to think we're the Jews in this story. We may even be tempted to identify with John the Baptist because we're Christians. We're disciples. We're heralds of the good news, right? But we know. We know we're the outsider standing on the riverbanks, listening in to a prophet talk to his people about their story. And we know we've actually been much worse than all of them. We haven't held to Torah. We don't know the story of Israel and God's work through history in their way. We, we've been born and raised in a culture of constant con- competition and lying and discontent. We've lived serving the agendas of idols and politicians and military and economic success. We've benefited from the global slave labor that stitches together our cheap clothing and assembles our technologies, and it's eating us up. Sure, it's good to be on top of the social global ladder. It pays well compared to the $2 a day that most people live on. We have plenty of luxuries and technologies that have come from our global dominance and domestic prosperity, but something's still amiss. Something's not working. One more win at work doesn't make us feel that much better. One more political victory doesn't change our character or the behavior of most of our countrymen. One more advancement financially, whether it's personally or as a nation, isn't bringing us more peace. It doesn't seem to be bringing anyone else more peace either. Could we have this whole thing backwards? Could God the God of history be represented in a strange prophet standing outside of a river telling people to love their neighbors. Could that be where God's located? Could we have mislocated God entirely that he's not in the palace, he's not in the military might, he's not in the economic prosperity at the cost of others, he's not in the religious elite, he's not in the centralized powers of temple or earthly thrones, he's not in our badges of success and accolades from our co-workers, he's not in our religious, political, or economic dominance. Could God be coming to us from the margins through people like this homeless preaching man, through a poor infant? In poverty, through a criminal of the state executed outside the city. Could the path to welcoming God, the God of history, be made open through giving up our position, giving up our power, laying down our violent strategies, sharing our resources like food and clothing freely, through being content with our pay and not competing to get ahead of others all the time. With the Messiah, with the new kingdom, with this salvation, would God come to us, recognize us as his own people, and welcome us? Would he include us in this new exodus? This calling out of his people. What 
should we do? If what John says is true, then we have to begin to assess what repentance will mean for us. What will preparing the way of the Lord and his coming mean for us now in how we treat our neighbor in the social, political, and material realities of our lives? And we need to then be baptized into that reality. To be cleansed, to be made clean by another, and to be called out into a new story for our lives, a pilgrimage with the people of God. We don't wait for the coming of the Lord by doing nothing, by just believing the right things. No, we wait for the coming of the Lord by repenting, by taking action, by turning from the direction that we've been going and going a different direction altogether. This is a baptism of repentance that John comes to bring. One that says, I will no longer live the way I've been living towards my neighbor and participating in the systems I have. Instead, because I believe the Lord is coming back and I'm waiting and preparing for his arrival, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to be different. It says, I need saving. I need saving from the corrupt financial systems I participate in. I need saving from the greed and the competition of consumerism. I need saving from the disparaging and insulting and gossiping culture I live in. Perhaps, if we keep reading, we'll learn something about this kind of living. If we are anticipating closely, if we're learning to posture ourselves patiently and expectantly and waiting and looking for hopes, perhaps we can even participate in it as well. Perhaps while we wait for the coming day of the Lord, a, a day when all things will be made right, when God will be all in all, perhaps we can find answers to this question. What shall we do? Thank you.